Now it's time for another episode of the Brothers Trek About. And hey, welcome back to the Big Big Show. My name is Matt, and with me, as always, coming from Planet Houston, is Ken. Say hello, Ken. Live long and prosper. There you go. Welcome. All right, so today we're going to talk about where no man has gone before, the second in the filming sequence that the uh, show has gone through, the second pilot, I guess you could say. So they screened the first pilot, Herb Solo, who was then called the uh, executive in charge of production, which I guess now would just be probably your uh, executive producer, said that it was the greatest screening of a pilot he had ever seen, that he had ever been to. Uh, he says, and I quote, they were blown away by the production, the scope of the film, the music, and the whole physicality and feeling of the film. And in that same meeting, NBC rejected it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to have a, uh, you know, something that was, you know, so overwhelmingly positive to end up being like, eh, no, sorry. Uh, this is amazing. We can't use it. <laughs> yes, Exactly. Well, it's funny. I've got more on that. Here we go. We're going to get there. So NBC's rejection started with, started by saying uh, it was too cerebral. Uh, of course, we've heard this about Trek, uh, Trek many times over the years. And in fact, uh, especially more so original series than for me, Next Generation, I really feel like it is a little more smarty pants generation than uh, the Next Generation is. I think that's always been one of my like negativities, sort of. But it's probably been something that you've, uh, you've always enjoyed. It is. And I... I think that some of the, if you look at the whole arc of Trek, and StarTrek.com just did a, which is the best episode poll, and the two, oh, cont uh. the two contenders were uh, Darmok and Inner Light, which have to be some of the most smarty pants episodes. Oh, yeah. And if you look at the best Trek, the Trek that people love the most, it's always the most cerebral. They take something really interesting and they explore it in a really fascinating way. The, the adventure episodes, the fun, shoot 'em up. You know, we, we fought the Romulans, we fought the, the Klingons. Typically not the favorite episodes, although my favorite... Uh, Balance of Terror. Balance of Terror does deal with a lot of war and peace, kind of Cold War looming in the background. Uh, you know, is this... How do we, on the one hand, deter the Romulans, on the other hand, not provoke a cat catastrophic war? Which is... The cerebral stuff. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like, I mean, I think that Darmok is interesting, which, of course, we'll get to in, like, eight years. But, like, I think Darmok is interesting because it's it's uh, it's dealing with language, you know? And, I, I mean, I love language. That's Those are the kinds of things I like to break apart and go, oh, it's similar that that word is this word and blah, blah, blah. You know, like, for me, looking at the history of language is, like, totally fascinating. So that's one of my favorite reasons I like Darmok more than, uh, more than, more anything. than anything. It's also what I think is wrong with the movies. The movies, oh. and we, I think this is a, a good episode in which to explore some of these uh, problems, but the movies have the problem, one, they have a villain, uh, except for uh, really the first movie. The episodes don't have villains. 
the episodes have problems and the movies tend to be more and and you know movies attract this kind of problem is that they're high adventure mm -hmm. but star trek is not about high adventure yeah and so you know making a movie like wrath of khan which is a really good movie in one sense sets the wrong template for how to do star trek movies because they look for a villain and create a lot of adventure. I think it's what's wrong with Nemesis, which has all those all those elements in it. Got this clear villain, yeah. this you know uh, clone, and a lot of fighting. And but who cares? Yeah. Ultimately, that's how I feel about that movie. Who cares? You know, and they're they're fun to watch. Yeah. And then when you're done, there's nothing left. Yeah. Which is not typically what's true about, I mean, Star Trek's still with us, and it's because of the ideas and the problems rather than the villains. And right, 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 exactly. So the network also felt that uh, the eroticism of the pilot was, uh, they were worried that that would foreshadow into the ensuing series. <laughs> and they were so uh, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And it still continued, even though they called it out. They actually put the quote in, no more scantily clad green dancing women with bumps and grinds. That's what they said. NBC sales, uh, the people who had to like pitch to uh, advertising and whatnot, felt that Spock might be seen as too de de demonic in the Bible Belt. So uh, that was another fear they had. And finally, the network decided that uh, they supported, number one, being a woman. They just didn't like Medjail Barrett. So, oh, well, what are you going to do? They just didn't feel like she was a star, I think is what they were saying. Yeah, I think you know, you've got this kind of studio system, movie star template that... But, of course, none of Star Trek would fit into that. You know, it's, it's kind of an old thinking that doesn't apply to Star Trek. Right. I think uh, Majel Barrett's number one character was is very Star Trek. It's one of the strongest Star Trek elements in the original pilot, which, as I mentioned last time, is full of lots of older scientific or science fiction tropes. So, uh, you know, I did mention that, uh, you know, you had Lucille Ball and Desi Lu, you know, they're behind the picture. And right. when the pilot gets canceled, of course, Lucille Ball is gigantic. She's running her own studio. She is the first lady of comedy on television. She's got her own successful, you know, show. She's got other shows that are great. She's got a lot of influence with CBS and she liked the idea of Star Trek for two reasons. One is she liked that it was intellectual, both because she thought it made good television, but also she felt like this is something I want to have in my stable. You know, it's fun to have a light comedy and, you know, a a serious drama, let's say a Western, but then to have something like this, a little more intellectual. And of course there is the example of Twilight Zone, which could be very intellectual. I, I think she felt like, I, I want this in Desilu. I want it in my family. And she went to bat with CBS. And as you can imagine, CBS could not just say no. So they were yeah. persuaded to do another pilot based on Lucille Ball saying, I'm going to put down a few chips on this. I want you to look at it. And they didn't want to disappoint Lucille. So It seems that uh, NBC chose the cage just to uh, push the creators to see what they could pull off. But they even figured, even after reading the script, that probably whatever was produced wasn't going to end up on air. Um, they said it was too off the beaten path. 
Uh, Ronberry followed this with, uh, well, if I was smart, I would have uh, ended it with a fist fight between the hero and the villain if I would if I would have wanted it to end up on television. Which is funny, since how this episode ends up <laughs> with a fist fight between the hero and the villain on a big planet. So uh, the producers pushed back a little bit on BNBC saying, well, if you never thought it was going to end on the air, we gave you choices. You said we should do this pilot, so we should do this pilot. So with that and uh, Steel Ball's uh, influence, uh, of course, they greenlit uh, a second pilot. Which time, like the first time in television history that that was ever done, which I think says a lot about the influence, the power of Lucille Ball. So they got to work. Uh, this is interesting. I wrote, I, I read this. Uh, Ron Berry wrote to his uh, agent about uh, the cage. He says, uh, whether or not it was the right story for sale, it was definitely a right one for ironing out, uh, ironing out su successful television science fiction. It has us firmly in a position to be the first. To who has ever successfully made a TV series science fiction for a mass audience, and yet with a chance for quality and network approval. I thought that was interesting. He's right. They By doing the cage first, they're wrestling with a lot of stuff that turns out to be the core of Trek. And while I don't think they're, they achieved it in one single episode, by having done that, one, they have put themselves in the right path for the future. Had they done, you know, the one with the fist fight at the end and more I think they would have ended up falling into the rut of kind of classic 50s, early 60s science fiction. Secondly, right. as we've seen, all other Star Trek people go back to the cage and mine it for things. Because they, right. they look at it and they go, this is, this is the, the original document. This is the thing. Right. We, we see it as Star Trek. We don't go, you know, that first episode, I, I, what the, you know, it looks like Forbidden Planet. Right, exactly. Uh, Jeffrey Hunter had talked about uh, the pilot a lot, saying great things about the possibility of the show, but uh, his contract said that he didn't have to come back and do a second pilot. Had the show been greenlit, he would have had to have done the show based on his contract, but his contract said it was only doing one pilot and not a second pilot. Opting out. He ended up opting out. They called him in to at least take a look at the cage to see if he liked it. Uh, but his wife came in his steed, and uh, at the end of it, she just said, uh, this is the kind of show Jeffrey wants to do. He's a movie star. So he was out. Uh, the network kept trying to throw money at him. Uh, but eventually, the producers were like, just let him go. Let him go. The sad part is, is that things just got worse for Jeffrey Hunter in the 60s. He ended up with a lot of guest starring roles and then had a stroke at the age of 42 where he fell and hit his head, and that trauma killed him. It's crazy. Nice job. Yeah. But, you know, so much okay. Hollywood in the, especially the 60s, feels like it's full of this kind of crazy, uh, you know, Petticoat Junction. Their, their great female star, you know, fell ill in the, in the middle of, she was young. She was actually the star of the show, right? Attractive. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, got sick and I think Petticoat Junction had like one or two more seasons. Wow, that's crazy. So Jack Lord was next offered the uh, role of Kirk, but uh, ended up demanding a hefty ownership of the show with also a co-producer status. <laughs> uh, Ron Barry obviously said no, and DC Fontana quipped that uh, Jack took his name a little too seriously. <laughs> Jack Lord. The original uh, Felix Leiter. Right, exactly. Well, that was the thing. He was like coming off of that, and uh, I don't know if he had... Probably hadn't done Hawaii Five-0 yet. I can't remember. No, Hawaii Five-0 is the 70s. 
right, 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 right. right. I, in fact, I was um, I was just listening to uh, the theme song. It's uh, part of my list of beautiful theme songs based on surf guitar. The Monsters, Y Five O. It's a uh, and the, and again you have the the reboot where they go back and they reboot it beautifully. It feels like a modern show currently, but yeah. or recently. But yet they had all the all the right nods. Yeah. So uh, Shatner obviously uh, is is uh, brought in. Uh, he had a staggering career before this. He had uh, a million Broadway credits, a million uh, uh, guest starring credits on TV, including famously uh, a couple of Twilight Zone episodes, a couple of Outer Limits episodes. He one time I thought this was an interesting fact for uh, Star Trek fans is that uh, he once took over for Christopher Plummer, who was playing Henry V. Christopher Plummer got sick, and so Shatner was his understudy and took over uh, the role of Henry V. I just would have loved to have gone to be able to go see that. <laughs> There's a video. Um, it, it, I don't know what it was for, but it's like the two of them sitting in a darkened theater with spotlights on them, and they talk uh -huh. about their their work. I think it was some kind of anniversary of something or other, or somebody got an award. And they're talking about this incident, how yeah. they'd worked together in the 50s in Toronto. And and of course, then they come back and do Star Trek and they talk a lot about Star Trek. But they also talk a lot about Shakespeare. And That's neat. Or, I've never seen that before. I mean, yeah, I need to find that. So uh, by the time, you know, 1964-65 rolled around, uh, Shatner had three kids. And uh, although he was doing a lot of guest starring and stuff, it just wasn't paying the bills. So he was looking for a very uh, hefty, steady paycheck that he could help out the family with. He was then cast in a show called For the People, in which he played a DA. Uh, he was lauded by Variety. They said, you know, he's a super up-and-coming star. Like, this is a really great show for him. But the show went up against Bonanza and the ABC Sunday Night Movie. And uh, after 13 episodes, it was canceled. Which actually proved Providence, because here we are in, you know late uh, fall, early spring, and you know, nobody's available, and suddenly here comes Shatner out of nowhere, and uh, they called him up, and he came over and watched a, uh, he, watched, he had a screening of The Cage, which he uh, really enjoyed. He says, of that screening, I remember I was impressed by three things. The green dancing girl, <laughs> Leonard and, right, of course, Leonard and uh, Majel. He goes, I thought it was uh, extremely innovative and inventive. Bonding over the uh, green-skinned dancing girl, they discussed that night about how Kirk should, Kirk should be portrayed, and then a few days later, uh, he signed on the dotted line. Shatner's deal was for uh, $10,000, plus a contractual guarantee that should the pilot go to series, he would also receive profit-sharing. So it was not quite as lordly, I suppose, as what Jack wanted, but uh, he, got, he still got the same deal. I love this quote, because, especially now, since we're... Cons we're uh, and we'll talk more about this once we actually, but I love this the episode, but I love this quote Bob Justman, uh, uh, one of the uh, producers, said about hiring Bill Shatner. He said, he was someone to be reckoned with, and we certainly understood that he was a more accomplished actor than Jeffrey Hunter was, and he gave us more dimension. Hunter didn't really run the gamut of emotions that Bill Shatner could. Technically, as an actor, Shatner was better, and plus he gave the captain this a more amazing personality. He brought about what Gene had in mind, which was a flawed hero, or at least a hero who considers himself to be flawed. I think that's interesting because, as you know, we sort of discussed last week, and we'll continue to discuss more this week. Just that personality, the depth, the the, the range that 
Shatner gives Kirk, even in this episode alone, is spectacular. It's really great. Uh, Leonard Nimoy, at this point, he also had the same contract as uh, Jeffrey Hunter. He did not have to come back for the pilot, and he was seriously considering not doing it because he was thinking, like, what's this going to do for my career if I'm this goofy alien on some TV show somewhere? But he went to his friend Vic Morrow, and uh, his friend said, y you know what, this is a win-win situation for you because if the show doesn't make it, you have nothing to worry about. If the show goes on the air and it's only on a couple of years, everyone's going to recognize you underneath the ears and the crazy haircut so, that they give you. So it's kind of a win-win situation for you. His paycheck for the pilot was only 2500 but uh, for him, that was uh, quite a lot of money having grown up in a, a tenement. The director of this episode, James Gladstone, uh, had directed already a lot of different types of uh, genres. You know, uh, he had done your cop stories and your your medical stories, your detective stories, all westerns. He had done all of these, so he thought adding a, a sci-fi show would be fun to do a drama in space. Just another notch on the old resume, so to speak. You, you look at people's careers, and we talked a little bit about Jeffrey Hunter's career last time, but lots of these guys, it's police dramas and westerns. And that's I think that really informs the acting, the story structure, there's a lot, a lot of genetic material coming out of those two genres. For sure. I mean, even just from like an artistic point of view, the precursor to any genre has direct influence upon it. And not only that, but it also shows that like, you know, Star Trek's a different cat. You know, it's like, it's going to be something that no one on TV has really ever seen before. So that's really cool. So they had lost their last director to another gig, so they had to bring in this new guy. Again, they were having problems because everybody else, this is already pilot season, everybody else is already shooting and doing whatnot. So uh, Gladstone was able to call in this old retired cinematographer. Turned out he was like 69 years old. So they bring him in and they're talking to him and they're like, so, uh, you know, what have you done? And he goes, uh, well, I one time did this little crazy thing called Gone with the Wind. <laughs> So they bring in the cinematographer for Gone with the Wind, you know? I mean, he won an Oscar for that. And, you know, he, he went on to do a bunch of other, you know, cinematography, you know, a bunch of other movies you've heard of, you know, Lilies in the Field, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. So here's this guy that they get to bring in to do, you know, pilot number two. So they were definitely lucky when it came to their uh, cinematographers over these last two pilots. And once again, that kind of stuff, you know, sets the bar. So, you know, even though they move on, you know, don't stay with it till the end, that people come in later like, I gotta work at that level. So, they got to work on the three different scripts. Uh, this one, where no man has gone before, obviously. Uh, the second being the Omega Glory, which was eventually shelled and used late in the second season. And then the third script, which would eventually become Mud's Women. Uh, the Omega Glory ended up being a really bad script uh, that nobody liked. Uh, they felt that Mud's Women was a little too light for a uh, pilot episode, so they decided to stick with the uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before script. Uh, NBC asks for uh, changes uh, in the fight at the end of the script. They want to eliminate any brutality that may end up in the fight. Uh, make it as brief as po possible. Make it more of a wrestling match, they said, which I think is funny because, you know, that's the thing that they give Kirk a lot of crap for, you know, in modern day sensibilities where he's like, well, he's wrestling and he's judo kicking and... I think people forget how much of these kinds of constraints are either this is how the network wants it because they don't want certain kinds of violence or because these are the this is what you can do on a set with people who are not actual 
combat people. They're actors. Right. Yep. And then the, the whole level of special effects. You know, so today it would be much easier to do a whole, a whole, a whole lot of more interesting combat that, I mean, it's almost like the difference between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader in episode four and what they were able to do in the prequels. The fighting could just be a yeah, lot better yeah, yeah. because we learn how to stage fighting. We learn how to throw in some special effects and, well, and they're not old men either, you know? I mean, it's not like a 70-year-old Alec Guinness out there trying to do flips and stuff. Well, of course, they do that with Christopher Lee, but it's all special effects. Uh, so Gary Lockwood is brought in on this one to play Mitchell, obviously. Uh, Gary Mitchell, uh, Kirk's friend. He originally turned it down because he got cast in 2001 A Space Odyssey, and uh, he was getting ready to leave. But uh, they kind of begged and pleaded with him to do it. He said, all right, I just need these three guarantees. Number one... I get top uh, I get top guest star billing, two I get the guest star rate of five thousand dollars, and three that I'm not going to be late for two thousand one. <laughs> so those are the three things that he asked for and got. Sally Kellerman's brought in. She gets the guest rate of three thousand uh, dollars. She wasn't obviously quite the name that uh, everyone would know her for in a few years when she played uh, Hot Lips Houlihan in the movie version of Mash, but uh, she had already had a few guest roles on uh, shows in and around uh, NBC. Star Trek is lucky that it gets to bring in a lot of people kind of at the beginning of their careers who end up being serious. So they, they, they do a guest starring role as a psychiatrist or as a 1930s peace activist or, you know, all these different roles. Right. And they turn out to have great careers. So they bring a yeah. depth. They bring something to the that, you know, getting guest star of the week or a guy who could never get past, you know, three guest starring episodes a year. So again, uh, Gene Roddenberry tried to cast DeForest Kelly as uh, Bones, but he, uh, he let the director talk him out of it again. Uh, this is the second time where DeForest Kelly was uh, nixed as the, direct, or as the doctor. So they brought in, uh, they brought in Paul Fix, who had uh, just been recently seen in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. So again, another famous big star actor who was uh, brought onto the show. And finally, one last little, uh, little detail about a, uh, a, another actor they brought on was uh, Paul Carr. He's the helmsman at the beginning, uh, at the beginning, and goes on to uh, get killed. So he'll not only be the first uh, red shirt, without being a red shirt, who gets killed in the line of duty, but uh, it's also funny too because he got really angry while he was filming because he started to realize how cool the show could be, and he wanted to be a regular on the show. But because he was hired to die, he had to die. Uh, two other quick things I'll just mention: James Doohan, obviously, he comes into this one, and uh, so does George Takai. So that's their first start of. Uh, two other regular characters who we'll see much more of uh, in the next few episodes, actually. It's actually quite striking that the only character who comes on from the cage is Spock. Everybody else is new. So, of course, we don't quite have McCoy yet. We still have Dr. Piper. But it's a, it's a familiar cast. All right, I say we jump right into the episode if you are ready. Yep. All right. Captain's log. Starting... Mission. Cool. So right at the beginning, space. We just see space. Uh, and we can bring back Stardates for the first time. It's funny. Here's a quote on that uh, because uh, Herb Solo, the, the guy who came up with, uh, with Stardates, he'd been reading, he loved Gulliver's Travels. And Roddenberry 2, something we didn't talk about in the last episode but should have, that Roddenberry 2 was really into Gulliver's Travels. He loved the satire of it. He loved the idea of being able to 
talk about very important issues that were happening today in another time, in another place, in another world. So that's part of where his idea for, uh, for Star Trek came from anyway. But Herb Solo really liked the ideas of it being told through like these journal entries. He also thought that this was going to be a quick and easy way in which to, uh, you know, get through pages and pages of exposition without having to do pages and pages of exposition, you know, save time on screen. Let's cut to the chase and go to it right away. Uh, but he also says this, we tried to set up a system that would be easy to identify or that would be hard to identify unless you knew how we did it. So what we did is we started on Earth. There would be this one start, this one start date. But then when you went to Alpha Centauri, there would be a different date. Because everywhere you would go to, every different sector of the universe would have their own star date based on their stars. So that's how they originally conceived this. So the fact that this, this you know, episode starts off at, what, 13, 13.1 or wherever it starts off at, uh, shows you that, like, well, we didn't really know what we were doing. We were playing with an idea that didn't really necessarily work. Yeah, most of uh, the first series will have star dates in the 3000s. But we have four or five that are here in the teens. And now that we have the, the kind of modern sense of the star date, when you look back and you do have these early episodes with this earlier star date, you're kind of like, oh, this was like Kirk's first five-year mission, or maybe it's the first year or two of the five-year mission. Or right. Um, they go back quite a ways. It's before they standardized the star date is what it was, you know. Uh, he was like, well, I'm just 13-13 out on my own mission. I don't know what everybody else is doing. <laughs> so anyway, we hear in that, uh, we do hear in that first captain's log that there is a, uh, they have found a, another distress beacon uh, out in the middle of space and uh, that they were trying to hunt it down. Uh, meanwhile, to kill some time, Kirk and Spock play some uh, 3D chess. Uh, our first time. Maybe our only... No, it's not the only time we see it, right? We see it. It pops up again a few times on the series. Yep. Yep. Uh, this is funny, though, because this is one of those things where the past, you know, sort of is like looking forward to the future and tries to... Obviously, we know Star Trek is very smart about, like, being very forward-looking. You, know, uh, you know, we see iPads, you know, before there were iPads. Uh, it's funny. I think that the data disks in this episode look like old, like, three-and-a-half drive, you know, diskettes and whatnot. So... Uh, it's funny, but then but then you look at 3D chess and you're like, exactly how's that supposed to work? That just seems like one of those like wacky things that like 60, a lot of you in the 60s, they, they pull out in the 60s to make everything look futuristic. I think Doctor Who does that a lot too, where you're like, they take this normal thing and they spin it in just a way that you're like, would you like a 3D hot dog? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> How does that work? I know, hot dogs three-dimensional? <laughs> yeah. It's funny here too. You can see the uh, you can see Spock looks really a lot greener in this episode. You know, in the other one they tried to make him look a little more red. This one they're trying to make him look a little green. And I think you can really see the makeup. I mean, obviously in our digital high tech age that we're in now, you know that his makeup looks really green in this episode. It's interesting because later on, they continue to. So if we go into uh, you know the '90s and onward they'll continue to make Spock look very human and other Romulans and Vulcans will look greener compared to Spock. Uh -huh. And I don't know whether this is an attempt to rather than contrast Spock with the humans by making him slightly greener, they're now contrasting with the aliens by saying, well, he's half human. We're going to make him look pinker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you'll see him standing next to all these, like in the unification episodes, 
All the other Romulans look way greener. Uh, so then apparently, now I'm not sure what happens here, but Kirk actually beats Spock, right? Yep. That's what we're led to believe has happened in this thing. So it's weird because, I mean, again, as smart as, and logical as you think that Spock is, maybe he's just a young kid in this episode, who knows? But you know, you'd think that like he would have saw that one coming. So the, they've always got this problem. On the one hand, the show wants to be intellectual. It wants to, I think, make a statement for logic. Star Trek is really an enlightenment document. It's all about the 18th century and the values of the enlightenment in the 18th century. It's why all this source material, Captain Cook's voyages, Gulliver's travels, Horatio Hornblower, they're either set in the 18th century or they're written in the 18th century, and they're source material. The yeah. values of Star Trek are from the Enlightenment. And this question of logic or reason, as the 18th century would put it, you know, is at the heart of Star Trek. On the one hand, they embrace it. On the other hand, they want the the mix, which is is really a kind of late 18th century age of sensibility thinking mm -hmm. um, that you you don't want to be cold and sterile and scientific and like just pure rationality you want to have this more developed emotional side as well and that's the side that ultimately Star Trek wants to back and so while we're not there yet ultimately they're gonna create this triad between Kirk Spock and McCoy in which an emotional side, a ra pure rational side, and then kind of a Freudian ego to pull it all together is constructed. Well, and again, I think we see our, our beginnings of that in this episode, too. Again, in the conference room scene, you know, we have uh, Dr. Daner on one side, you know, we got Spock on the other who's like, kill him, let's get rid of him. And then, you know, got Dr. Daner going, we don't even know what this is. I know you don't have feelings, but... So yeah, I think that definitely pops up again in this episode. We also get a lot of lampshading of Spock's emotionlessness. It's a new feature. It wasn't part of the cage. Yeah. And they, they lampshade it because, of course, the first time we see it, you do want to point that out so the audience knows it's there. Once it's established, you yeah. don't have to mention it quite so often. Yeah, you don't have to keep saying it. Although we know McCoy goes on to say it quite a bit. Why, you green-blooded. We also find out Spock is half-human right out the gate here. Well, he just says an ancestor of mine. Which oh, that's turns true. out to be an odd way of referring to your mother. <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, he is an alien. <laughs> no blue for Spock, either. He's in, his, he's, in his, he's in the gold in this he episode. Is. So, of course, there's no red for anybody. They haven't come <laughs> up with the... And it really makes sense. You look at that bridge. It is so full of color. And one of the reasons is, is color television's new. Yes. And NBC adopts the peacock as its slogan because they want to say, we are the premier color network. Right. And so, you know, having red, blue, and gold as their colors really will stand out beautifully on television. And I think early on they're thinking, well, a lot of people sell black and white. You want to be able to tell them apart. So let's just go with light and dark blue and red won't necessarily stand out on a black and white TV. Uh, later on, I think they'll double down on color and go with red. But that, that set 
is so full of, you know, it's got the red banisters. Why? Because they, they pop on, yeah. on a color screen. So they finally get to the, uh, the, 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 the object. They find out it's an old flight recorder, basically, from a uh, crashed ship. And uh, we got our unexciting introduction of Scotty right here, right at the top. Boom. It's like, oh, hey, you're Scotty. I mean, little did we know, you know, what an icon he'd become. But even still, you're just like, oh, it's Scotty. Okay. I guess, I guess he's going to run the transporter for a while. And then they beam it aboard. And then all of a sudden, this is a part I didn't understand. So I'm going to let you go ahead and explain this to me. Because, so they get it aboard and then it starts to transmit. Right? And then Kirk goes to red alert. Why does Kirk go to red alert? That's a good question. I know, it just seemed weird. He's like, oh, they're transmitting. And he's like, all right, tell the bridge to go to red alerts. The thing is transmitting. I think it was more because of what they thought the message would contain. Maybe, yeah. He, he wanted to get into action. He wanted everyone at their posts. He didn't want to go upstairs, read the message, and be like, oh, we got to hurry. Everybody, <laughs> right? <to> posts. <laughs> and I got to wait. <laughs> there you go. Love that answer. Good answer. All right. Uh, then we get into the opening titles, right? Our first Space the Final Frontier. Although we don't actually uh, get the words. They're added. Really? Yeah, they're added when they, um, what did they do? They refinished them. They re, we did the digital stuff. Yeah, so, yeah, There's yeah. a word for that. That's when they went back and added the original or the, the more familiar title. If you, oh, so, really? Yeah, so I watched it on, uh. Um, all access, and we're not getting the, the, re, the reprint. The digital, yeah, yeah, the, the digital, digital versions. And uh, yeah. we get the music, and we get the yeah. the cards, starring. But there's no talking. Oh well, I, I am apparently watching. I knew, I knew based on the special effects, but uh, yeah, I guess I'm watching the digital version on that. So good catch on that one, sir. So Kirk and Spock hop into the elevator, and then Mitchell uh, jumps on. Mitchell, and uh, I guess Kirk won. I guess we 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 here we get the we get the okay that Kirk did win it. He gives that little move to uh, Mitchell, let him know that uh, he was able to beat Spock. Spock was not happy about it. He was a little irritated. So this is I love this little moment here. It's just funny. So Kirk's giving the the all announcement. You know, like hey, we found this thing. Just so you know, we're going to listen to what it says, so everybody... And right in the middle of that, <laughs> Spock starts yelling, THE TAPES HAVE BEEN DESTROYED! And so Kirk just like looks at him for a second, like, okay, thanks, dude. Anyway, guys, we're going to be... It was so funny to me. I was just like, okay, it's probably not what he even meant in that look. He was probably just looking at him, but it was just such a look like, why are you yelling? Hold on. <laughs> well, we still have the Spock yelling the... Uh... Which we saw in the cage. Yep. Kind of, it feels more like a naval ship. Like maybe it would be hard to hear with all the machinery running. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. yeah As opposed point. to you know the, the kind of quiet high tech, you know, a little bit of beeping, a little bit of <laughs> exactly all those beeps. That's the one thing I definitely remembered even back in the day when I was watching it as a kid. Is all the like the oh, like meow, meow, meow. yeah. Meow, meow, meow. I'm trying to make that noise, but I can't. But you know what noise I'm talking about? That's always going on in the background. So in walk the uh, blue science officers. Uh, here we get uh, we get Dr. Danar, uh, we get Dr. Piper, uh, Scotty who's in yellow, and then uh, and then also uh, uh, Mr. Sulu. It's like there's a off 
gold. It's a beige color. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too because Mitchell has it at, at, at one point later, just before they beam down to the Dilithium Crystal Planet, um, which is Vega or whatever. Um, they uh, he's he's in the he's in the different color, color too. too. So I don't know whether this was, you know, they cheaped out on wardrobe halfway through, or whether it was right. supposed to denote, you know, lower rank. Gold, or, yeah. yeah, gold is for officer, beige is for non-officers. Yeah. Or lower officers. Uh, Mitchell hits on Dr. Daynar, uh, which falls really flat. He calls her a walking freezer unit. Uh, this is actually funny because this was a network note that actually didn't want them to use the word frigid. Because yeah, they, they felt, felt that the use of the word frigid was too sexual. I think that's funny. Well, so they can, instead you go for the super science fiction-y awkward, no one will ever talk this way, you know, Freezer unit. <laughs> yes, exactly. Walking freezer unit. Hey, kids, you want some popsicles for the freezer unit? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Fake. Heightened. Yeah, heightened. Heightened. Uh, I can't think of the word. But anyway, you, you end up with this way of speaking that's easy to imitate because it's so artificial. In which you yeah. can do things like, uh, "Hey, let's post about this on the Facebook machine. Let's go get, <laughs> let's go get some treats from the freezer unit." <laughs> they sound tasty. <laughs> well, then we just have to. What's, would you like some space popsicles from the freezer right, unit? Exactly. Oh yeah, we're totally uh, in early science fiction. Uh, so the tapes reveal that the uh, that the uh, crew of the ship had found... This is supposed to be like 200 years ago. This timeline's all messed up. But this was supposed to be like 200 years before the Enterprise. Yeah. This is like, like SpaceX. SpaceX. Like SpaceX. SpaceX. Their first <laughs> out of the galaxy. It was, yeah. In fact, uh, Elon Musk was on that <laughs> that ship. He's the one who got the uh, the expert who goes crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. That's probably true. <laughs> Um, so anyway, the tapes reveal that the crew had found a new life force, uh, urgent request for ESP, obviously. So then they decide that they're going to try and leave the galaxy anyway, despite the warnings of uh, said, said thing. Intentions mount as they try to leave the galaxy. So now here's my question. So the Enterprise is supposed to be the first ship leaving the galaxy, right? First of all. Then, so then... I. Is this the only way out the galaxy, or are they purposely like trying to figure out what happened to the other ship, or like, you know, does this, this become like a, like a do, do not, not enter, enter zone, zone? You know, at some point, uh, like, we know why the galaxy just not this way. It is like a barrier at the edge of the galaxy, like from right. what? <laughs> Did someone build a wall? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but of course, it's it. This is one of those elements of early science fiction. It's unknown. Let's just make stuff up. Yeah, 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 yeah. And later on, scientifically, so right. And later on, you know, Star Trek becomes famous for having, you know, good scientific or technical advisors who give them much more plausible things to talk about and problems to resolve. And this, I think, is one of those elements of early science fiction that we're still stuck with: is this inexplicable barrier at the edge of the galaxy. So uh, here we are on the edge of the galaxy. Things don't go well. Uh, lots of electricity and lightning appear to be happening. Uh, send shockwaves through the... Uh, well, not shockwaves. Sends electricity, lightning 
through the uh, through the 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 ship and uh, knocks out both. Uh, well, not just, but knocks out Doctor Daynard, knocks out uh, Gary Mitchell, and then apparently kills nine other guys on the uh, on the on the boat. Well, we we got explosions from consoles. Yeah. And yet Spock is reading no energy, um, no, like, no cause. Mm-hmm. It, deflectors say it's there, sensors say it's not. They can't find any radiation or any any source of the, what's going on. Which, of so course... It's ESP. Yeah, it's, it's... But this is a very kind of 60s cool thing that to the rest of us would be like, what? Although... <laughs> Star Trek does develop its own more more in in story ESP the telepathy the true and so we'll get characters like Spock who has you know the mind meld but we'll also get Betazoids it won't become unusual for characters to have something like this and kind of but they won't refer to it in a kind of you know 1960s Esper, ESP. We'll just go straight to telepathy. Right, exactly. Just move past it. Kirk rolls him over and he's got the silver eyes! Scary, spooky silver eyes. Funny story about that is that uh, although uh, later in the episode when Kellerman has to wear hers, she was already used to wearing contacts because she already had contacts in her real life, but poor Gary Lockwood. Not so lucky on that. So, and every five or six minutes, would have to take him, take him out of his eyes because he just couldn't stand them being in there. So apparently, they were like the hard glass ones. I think they also. That's all. He has a lot of shots where he's looking down, where you can't see yeah. his eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, knowing that, I was wondering to what extent they were doing shots without the contacts in. Oh, and, and they're just like, well, you'll have to look down so we can't see your eyes. And, and it also kind of looks weird. So it's it's cool. Well, and to be fair, and I don't know if this is a piece of retconning on his own part, but he said that the other reason that he did it was so that he could look haughty, you know, to make himself look like he was better than everybody else. Yeah, okay. So, and that's what he said. You know, super godlike in that respect. Yeah. It all works. Uh, so we find out, too, uh, that all the people who were affected, the, the nine others who died and the two in, on the bridge, were all, all had very high Esper ratings. Apparently, this is what whatever the source was was looking for, you know. But we find out in this scene in the sick bay that uh, Mitchell and Kirk were buds. Apparently, Kirk, as a lieutenant, taught at uh, the academy for a while, or at least was a student aide or something. I don't, I don't know exactly how clear that was. I, I got the impression that he was another student. Because he's, oh, so you're saying, like, he was smarter than the rest of the students in the class. Yeah, so what I, the impression I got is that they were establishing, by using what other characters say about you, mm-hmm. that that Kirk is cerebral, that he's smart, that he's an intellectual, that he's a scientist. A lot of people, I feel like... Uh, interpret Kirk as being a man of action and not being a scientist, for example. And of course, standing next to Spock, it's going to be hard to look like a scientist. Right, right, right. When Spock isn't standing next to him, Kirk actually does a lot of scientific stuff. He 
uses uh, you know, scientific vocabulary. He will discuss things in terms of the scientific method. It happens a lot. And I think they're trying to regularly establish that these guys are explorers. They're all scientists. And Kirk is not just a military man or a man of action. But he's this kind of... Uh, so I'm going to refer back to... Uh, Master and Commander, you know, the Mr. Blakeney wants to be a fighting naturalist. He wants to be a scientist who is also an officer in the British Navy. And that is what mm -hmm. Kirk is. Not necessarily a naturalist, but he's a fighting scientist. He's someone who combines both roles, whereas Spock, who is simultaneously, you know, Mr. Science, but he's also, you know, super smart and Mr. Logic. It's hard to stand next to Spock and look like Mr. Science. But they, they give Kirk, and this is the beginning of it, lots of science for Kirk. Well, so then, then they also mentioned that, that uh, Mitchell threw a, uh, a lab assistant at Kirk, a blonde one at that. And I was wondering, uh, is this the beginning of the Carol Marcus uh, thread that uh, sort of weaves itself through the uh, Star Wars universe? Or, oh, sorry, through the uh, Star Trek universe? <clears throat> Could be. All Mitchell's fault. You know, so this might be a good place to uh, bring up uh, MBTI for the first time. So, you know, you got a bunch of guys who are in a military-type organization. It's hierarchical. It's well-organized. People have... Uh, and, you know, your default position has to be they're all guardians because this is a guardian environment. Uh, I think... Uh, you know, the best reading of Kirk is that he's an ESTJ. And that means he's going to have this vulnerability. He's going to have this fourth function, this totally unconscious place that he has no control over, his F. It's at the bottom of his stack. And uh, you know, for a Jungian or a Freudian, this unconscious is stuff that we're not aware of and we're not in control of. And if Kirk is, as I suspect he is, an ESTJ, he's going to have this fourth function. Doesn't It's totally unconscious functioning. It's this F. And he's going to be vulnerable to a lab assistant being thrown his way or right. the alien girls. But this isn't part of what defines Kirk. It's part of his unconscious functioning. So it seems like at this point, Kirk is like needling Mitchell, you know? Like first he's, it's like first he's even trying to figure out, is this still the same Mitchell that I know and love? If it isn't, does he still have Mitchell's memories? Are Mitchell's memories still in there? Also, it's like he's poking and prodding to figure out what powers he has. And not only that, but what powers Mitchell knows that he has. Kirk leaves. And uh, and Damer comes in and she's uh, kind of hanging out, talking to him. Again, she too is trying to like poke and prod to see what he's capable of doing. I think her so more obviously than even Kirk is. Mitchell starts messing with his like autotomic functions, you know, like the heart rate. He starts raising it and lowering it. And then suddenly he ends up dead for 26 seconds. 
My question is, is like, is he really dead for those 26 seconds? Is he playing dead for those 26 seconds? Like, does his does does his autonomic system even matter at this point now as, as such a higher uh, human as he is? Well, I think it clearly does because hitting him seems to be super effective. Yeah. As though his physicality remains totally human, even though his mental powers are becoming transhuman. Doc choose, or, uh, Dr. Danar chooses a, a random... Uh, data disk starts going through that kind of quizzes mitchell who has now like learned to read you know pages in a second while you know retaining everything including the page number and the passageway uh, and then uh there he uh, creepily tries to seduce her and then uh out of nowhere in walks kelso right on his coffee break which i thought was interesting <laughs> i was like oh hey so yeah somebody else has got the helm it's fine uh, but it, there's also a weird shot here where they cut to Sally Kellerman and she's like, it's like she's completely out of focus. It's not even like soft focus at this point. It's like she's just completely like out of focus in the shot. It's like, well, it's the only one we got. We got to use it. But I just thought that was weird. It took me out of it for a half a second. But it's funny because I feel like in Mitchell's scene with Kirk, he knows what he's doing. Like he turns around and he's like, oh, hi, Kirk. You know what I mean? Like he's like he walks in and. And then, uh, you know, the reading of the book and all of that stuff. He even looks towards it, like there's that scene on the scene when he looks towards the camera, that creepy stare that he gives the camera. So it's interesting, all those like little moments where you feel like he knows what power he has and he's using them. But then in the scene with Dr. Daner, it's like he's finding them out as he's using them. You know what I mean? Which again, I don't know if it was an acting choice or a story choice, but I, I, I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. You got anything to say on that? I think that one of the benefits of having Mitchell be a friend to Kirk is that he will be totally revealing. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it makes a lot of sense that if you suddenly were aware that you were gaining these transhuman powers, you'd keep that on the down low. Because you, right. you wouldn't want everyone to turn on and want to kill you. True. But because they have a long history and because Mitchell has, you know, saved Kirk's life and maybe Kirk has saved Mitchell's life in the past... He feels like he can be open about what's going on until he realizes, oh, wait, they, they still want to kill me. Whoops. This might also be a good time to talk about one of the uh, core themes of Star Trek. So Star Trek is about, it's a humanistic document in the sense that humans are the greatest good. And one of the things that they always reject are any kind of transhumanism. So eugenics, um, cyborgs, any kind of superhuman, you know, in this case, super ESP, it's a problem right. and it's got to be exercised because humans need to be the thing. All these other kinds of transhumanism are a problem. So there's this great game called Eclipse Phase. And in it, you know, transhumanism is a positive thing, right? So you play uplifted animals or, you know, cyborgs or computers or aliens or half-human aliens. You, you, you almost never want to play straight human. You want to be right. augmented in some way, whether it's through genetic augmentation or some other kind of you know, alien DNA or robotics or what have you. 
And in playing this game, I thought, you know, it would be fun to actually play Star Trek using this system. Because you, you, you'd be able to say, well, here's my totally cybernetic character. It's Data. Here are my right. augments. You know, they are... Um, or you could just, you know, make an augmented character and say he's an alien, like Spock. But because Star Trek has values that are totally opposed to one of the themes of the game, it would set in stark contrast the values of Star Trek versus transhumanism. It's how I discovered this idea that, like, I'm like, well, Star, you know, this is, Star Trek is so opposed to this kind of thing. Yeah. Interesting. So our next scene is in the uh, conference room. We've got uh, Kelso, Spock, Kirk, Scott, Scotty, uh, Dr. Danar, and Sulu. And Spock has it like figured out right from the start. He's like, Mitchell is mutating into something else that's way beyond us. We can't even call him Mitchell anymore. Like that's just how like it is, you know. And uh, <clears throat> and he goes on to like say like eventually he's going to be peons. You know, he's going to see us as peons. He's not even going to need us. It's like he calls the whole rest of the episode. You know, it's like. Hey, Spock, you're on top of this. It's like, you know, it's going to happen or something. So uh, I love that. But uh, what I also love, too, I mean, again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we got our we got our like emotional side, our, our you know, our practical side and the, the two are fighting on it. And this really puts Kirk in the tight spot, I think, in this uh, in, in this episode, you know, uh, kill his friends, strand him on a planet like these are all let him be. You know, these are all options that uh, he doesn't like. <laughs> so uh, and then it, again it's like dealing with the practicality of one situation versus the emotion of the situation you know where it's like here he is he's my best friend but really i really need to like kill him i need to like just end this now before it gets any worse and puts the ship in danger which as we know is kirk's one true love this is one of it's a regular theme for kirk he's really married to the ship he's right. devoted to protecting the ship and its crew it's his number one goal from here on forever. And of course, it's one of the things that, you know, tells me that, that Kirk is a, this guardian type, that he is a, he's doing his duty. His duty is so important to him. It's so central to who he is as a character, as opposed to uh, taking risks and having an adventure, um, having fun, you know, which is not really who Kirk is. I mean, he does a lot of that. But that's, of course, because of, of his role as an explorer, not because left to his own devices, contra the, the reboot Kirk, that he would be out driving cars fast and driving up to a cliff and right, right, right. danger everywhere. That's a different kind of personality. And the, the original series Kirk is, I think, very much a duty-driven character. It's, you know, in one sense, and, and the doctor points this out, He's backing Spock's interpretation of things over his best friend from way back. And I think it's because it plays into his sense of duty, that his first duty is to protect his crew. Uh, so uh, they get to planet Vega. I think that's the name of the planet. Why can't I remember the name of it? I don't remember, but it's Vega. And uh, the, where they can not only, because they've got, he's got two problems too he's dealing with, because he also has the ship, which needs to recharge uh, the dilithium crystals in it. So they go to Vega so that they could recharge the thing and hopefully strand, uh, strand Mitchell on the planet. And then eventually decides, well, hey, maybe we can just blow this place up and I can take care of two birds with one stone. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's a little extreme. But there he goes. He decides to do it. And uh, I think what they needed there was leverage over a super being. 
Oh, okay. So, like, that wasn't the plan. It was only going to do it if, like, he got out of line. Yeah, so what they were going to do is basically say, listen, we could destroy the whole planet. You, It's, it's what they did with the phaser in the cage. Right. right. So they were going to overload the phaser. So, hey, I'll, I'll kill us all right here unless you let us go. We're not going to be slaves. And they're basically doing the same thing with Mitchell here. Mm -hmm. We'll blow us all up. You can't win here because either we all die or we're going to leave you here. And that's how it's going to be. So uh, we cut to uh, Sick Bay. Mitchell's in there and uh, makes a styrofoam cup fly across the room. Thought that was another like very sick. Like, well, we'll just spray paint the styrofoam. And styrofoam is new and exciting anyway. We'll just spray paint it. It'll be extra exciting. <laughs> no, it's super styrofoam. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so they come in there. They try to, uh, or they do. I guess they drug Mitchell, and then they uh, beam down to the planet where we get another uh, nice matte painting of the uh, facility. It's beautiful there. But uh, they sort of like. As he's drugged, they throw him into, like, I guess it's like a cell. It's at least a room that has a force field on it. And uh, Mitchell tries to fight against it a couple of times. Uh, it weakens him, which is good. It shows he has a weakness. His eyes even go back to normal for a half a second before he uh, try, uh, before uh, they turn silver again. It's funny because when his eyes go normal, Spock says, uh, he could be handled now. I was like, whoa, that's like... He's like, just do it. We're just going to kill him. We got to do it. If we're going to do it, do it now. It's the best time. Oh, you missed your chance. Sorry. But... It's also funny, too, because then in that scene, like, his eyes come back silver and Mitchell stands up and he's like, I'm just going to keep getting stronger. It's like almost like he's baiting Kurt. You know, yeah, at this point. He's just like, come on. Come on. Bring it on. Let's go, buddy. I love that. Like, I, I, I enjoyed the first half of the show, but I, to me, it isn't until they get to this planet where the show, like, really livens up and becomes really something exciting, at least as far as I was concerned. So, I really, from this point on, you're going to see me get, like, crazy animated about everything, <laughs> including, <laughs> including the arrival of the phaser rifle, which is very exciting. I love that giant gun thing. So, like, in, in Star Trek Online, uh, the last season was to introduce... And a time travel, you can play 23rd century characters, and they'll become temporal agents, so they can be integrated into the current timeline, which is taking place 25 years after right. you know, DS9 and so forth. And you get those you get those phaser rifles. I've got one. And of nice. course, I outfitted my 23rd century crew with entirely 23rd century weapons. Nice. I, you know, I didn't... And I would, I would pass up all the cool new stuff which they give you in, you know, tremendous... So no Polaron, no anti-proton. We're all walking around with the 23rd century stuff. <laughs> with those with those pink beams that make things freeze and then right. you know, disappear. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Can't go be going around the, the 23rd century with a bunch of crappy... Uh, with a bunch of, like, new high-class stuff that doesn't exist We're yet. We're in the... Well, we're yeah, well, almost the 25th century, right? Oh, okay. okay. It's a 24... 24... 13 or whatever the year is. So, but yeah, we're, we're walking around, you know, in what would be modern, you know, Star Trek in which our, you know, next generation and DS9 crews are now old, retired, you mm -hmm. know, characters. And uh, <laughs> we've got these 23rd century pink beam, you know, frozen white disappears. You know, weapons. It's a lot of fun to be running around in that arrow. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. So the arrival of the, uh, the the phaser rifle brings about another moment between Kirk and Spock where they're uh, 
again, Kirk dealing with the turmoil of like, do I kill my friend? Do I not kill my friend? What am I going to do here in this situation? And uh, Spock's like, well, we got to do it. And he's like, well, how do you know? Like, how do you know any better than the psychiatrist? And Spock's like, because she feels I don't. Very telling. Very telling indeed, sir. Uh, meanwhile, while uh, just after this is going on, uh, Mitch, Mitchell uh, is in the uh, is in his thing, and he sort of imagines being in the other room, and he uh, uses his his magical powers to kill uh, Kelso with some cords that were lying on the ground. Uh, this was also another moment, actually, that NBC wanted to cut, but uh, they decided to keep it in anyway. You know, one of the things that Roddenberry always wanted to emphasize is that space is dangerous, right? And so, you know, we. Characters need to die because, you know, it's risky. They're taking risks. Yeah. Risk is a big piece of what's going on here. Again, they're, uh, they're getting ready to leave. Spock and Kirk are standing there. Again, uh, I feel like Mitchell is really baiting him. You know, he's like, uh, command and compassion are a fool's mixture, Kirk. You know, which I think is... Again, super important line when it comes to dealing with uh, with Kirk. I mean, that's like him, command, commanding compassion. Those are the two things I think that he really deals with on the regular, you know. Yeah, and he's gonna he's gonna in a sense double down on that. Yeah. Exactly. So and God uh, has is... to have compassion. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, Mitchell. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. Which is coming. So uh, Mitchell knocks out Spock and Kirk. Uh, which he doesn't kill them, mind you. <laughs> he just killed Kelso without a problem, but he leaves Spock and Kirk alive. Uh, I wondered if, like, you know, in the world, if that was maybe, you know, Mitchell's still feelings for Kirk, like he just couldn't, like, bring himself to do it yet, you know, if he had to wait till he's more powerful or, or what that was. Well, you know, there's also arguments that uh, he's pulling his punches in the later combat because he can't bring himself. He's, he's claiming that compassion is this fool's errand, but he's ultimately, a, he's got that human side, he's got that compassion in him too. Right, which I guess we'll get to too, and there's, because there's a line about like, you know, human frailty being part of the God too, you know? So this, here's, I, I, I think it's answered by the end of the episode, but I wrote this down at this moment anyway. Was, was Dr. Daner affected when she got hit the first time? It just took longer? Like that's what she ends up saying, this is like, it just took longer for it to affect me. So, but it isn't until this moment after he's knocked out Kirk. Because I guess he can sense that it's happening inside her because he doesn't knock her out. Right. Or maybe he's just got the hots for her at this point. I'm not even sure which it is now. But um, A little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. But anyway, so this is when she gets her silver eyes. She is well on her way now to becoming what uh, he has already become. Uh, so Piper finds Kirk and Spock after the commercial break. Uh, finds Kirk and Spock lying on the ground. Kirk decides now that he has to be the one who's going to take care of Mitchell. He even tells, you know, Piper to go so far as to be like, don't don't, don't give Spock the, the wake pill or whatever he calls yeah. it. He calls it a pill. Yeah, it's guy. a pill. He's, yeah. He's like, don't works, give him the pill. It works instantly. Yeah. They haven't come up with the hypo spray, which... But, but they do, sort of. Well, they, they, give, them, they give people shots. Uh, okay, fair. I think later on... It makes more sense that the hypo spray works instantly than yeah. like a pill would work instantly. You gotta digest it just to get those sure. chemicals in your blood. But the hypo spray, you could administer to where it needs to be. It's in the blood right away. True, 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 true. 
So uh, he tells Piper and Spock to beam up and that if he's not heard from within 12 hours to get the, the hell out of Dodge. So then we cut cut to, uh, to Mitchell and Daner and they're uh, on the uh, basically the same set that the cage was made on. <laughs> it's like, well, it's the same backdrop. But anyway, I'm not complaining. I like that backdrop. I thought it was great. But uh, but I just I was like, oh, well, I know where they got this set from. That's nice. So Mitchell changes the landscape a little bit, changes, adds some vegetation. And, uh, you know, it's funny because coming off the cage, you might think that this is an illusion. But in this case, this isn't an illusion. Like, he's literally creating life, you know, out of, uh, you know, out of thin air, basically. Dr. Marcus could have used her, used his help in <laughs> Star Trek too. That's right. Would have made things a lot easier. Uh, Mitchell can feel that he's coming, you know, that he's getting closer and closer. He, he could... He calls him like a pest or something. I can't even remember what the exact word is. Right, right. Insect. He calls, he calls him like, like a what? The, the, he refers to them as insects. Yeah. Well, I don't think that's what it, it was. Just like I guess he calls him a maybe he just calls him a guest. Anyway, so he tells him and he's like, oh, "Why don't you go to him? See if you, you you'll start to understand what a peon these uh, these crazy humans are." So uh, Daner confronts Kirk. And uh, that's when he you know that's when he starts yelling. And this is this is one of those scenes where. Where you get to see the range of emotion, you know that uh, that uh, Shatner does. You know uh, he plays it. He plays it low key a little bit in this one, and then you know he yells the uh, above all else, God needs compassion. You know, and that, and then just coming off of like you know the like smiles that he has in that opening scene where he's playing Spock, and you know, I mean, it's just really great to see like the awesome range of emotion that Shatner's got going on in these and uh, in, in, in this in this like until the end, really. You know, this whole like I said, this whole episode is a great Shatner episode, but. Then we get the line about the human frailty, like a god. What's a god going to do with human frailty? You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's dangerous. It's dangerous in his hands. I think that's where we've been coming. You know, it's like it's like where this whole, the whole thing's been leading to, you know? So then we go back to the conversation we just had about, like, you know, is he pulling his punches for, for Kirk? You know, obviously we know how she, he feels about her. But even still, he ends up trying to destroy her. It's, you know, it's really, it's really great. So here we go, right? We're careening towards the end. Kirk starts to use Daner, right? Conveniently to fight Mitchell for a little bit, hopefully wear him down a little. She uses her powers on Mitchell's first and then Mitchell uses his power on her, but his powers seem a little bit stronger, right? So, you know, takes her out and then, uh, then they, uh, so they're attacking each other for a little bit while and then he fires the phasers at him, but that doesn't do any good. And then this is when Kirk starts wrestling, right? Oh yeah, just what we've been waiting for. <laughs> Kirk, uh, of course, winds up with his shirt torn a little bit, which we'll see in many episodes to come. A bit of foreshadowing for the people. You know, so you know, people like to make fun of the shirt, but I think part of this again is the era of television which we're dealing with. We want to show that it's that the real violence is happening, but mm -hmm. one, they can't do the makeup for a variety right. of reasons. One, uh, I think realistic looking injuries are still beyond movie makeup. And to the extent that you could do them, reapplying and, and keeping the injuries consistent, you know, on the like over shot after shot would become yeah. impossible. So, what can we do that's both going to be within our budget and look realistic? We can tear his clothing. Yep. And so, in a sense, you know, making fun of the torn shirt is making fun of special effects in the 60s, which I think is unfair because... Right, right, fair, fair, fair. 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 It's not get a choice. Still, 
But I love it still, you know it is. I mean? It's still like, it's still great, I love it. Between, you know, just 60s effects and then the small budgets that they have on the TV and especially for Star Trek, we gotta give them a pass on that, sure. Mitchell shows Kirk his own gravesite, which is funny because it becomes his gravesite, you know. Is that Chekhov's gun? <laughs> right, exactly. And then he tries to pull that giant like rock off of the mountain. Also too, uh, Mitchell's hair is getting grayer, right? right? Yeah. It's as yeah. if like his whole, it's like, now what they would have done is like his whole face would have like started to become silver and he would have become a god. But like, this is the best we can do. Give him gray hair. It'll look like, uh, you know, he's really becoming the creature. Still, it's a nice touch. I like that. Uh, so uh, Dan this is now here's where Daner steps in. You know, Mitchell says, uh, morals are not for are for men, not for gods. Here's where, you know, Kirk's now playing Daner against against Mitchell. Um, I wrote down this really bad metaphor, which is he's like a child trying to he's like a, He's like a child trying to drive a car. That's what I wrote. I'm ridiculous. But that's what it is. You know, he's like the power is too much for him and he doesn't know how to wield it properly is kind of what I was going for there. Uh, so then Mitchell's trying to use like trying to get uh, uh, Kirk down on his knees, you know, to make a prey to him. Uh, Kirk tries to refuse. His willpower is great, but unfortunately, you know, he doesn't have enough of it. He makes, doesn't make his dice roll and unfortunately ends up on the uh, on the ground. Uh, so Daner attacks Mitchell attacks, Daner attacks, Mitchell attacks, she weakens him. So uh, Kirk moves in then, and it all ends with the big fist fight, right? Which is just what, what we said at the beginning, how we knew it was all going to end. Uh, then there's the moment when he's got the rock above his head, and he asks, you know, Gary for forgiveness. He's like, I'm sorry, I hope you forgive me. And then, of course, that's when the eyes turn back silver again, and oh no, they've got to fight again. Uh, all these emotions, Kirk, he could have just ended it here, but he didn't. Uh, the fight continues, and... Uh, Kirk, instead of shooting Mitchell at this point, when he has the opportunity to rise, he instead shoots the big rock. Rock falls in into the grave, smashing Gary, and uh, seals him in his tomb forever. Also, at this point, Daner dies. You know, he goes over, tries to like comfort her, uh, but she dies too. Two weeks move on, and the uh, bloody Kirk uses his communicator to call home. And he says, Enterprise, from Captain Kirk. Thought that was funny. He's like from Captain Kirk, you know, just to make it clear what's what's going on in this little. Oh, who's phone calling call us? <laughs> right, <laughs> who's saying that? Yeah, and then uh, that, is, that it. is it. Captain's log ends it. Yeah, it's really great. I like. I really like this episode. I uh, I dug it a lot. I think I dug it a lot more than the cage. I like. I like the ideas behind the cage, but just as like a, a, an awesome, like really fun episode. This one too, heavy on ideas. But uh, just, you know, just a fun, like, second half of this episode. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so, in the end, a uh, little behind-the-scenes post-work. Uh, the show ended up going over uh, $40,000 in budget. Technically, like, $39,000. $39, over budget. Uh, <laughs> five days, yep. yep. Uh, went uh, five days over what NBC was allowed to give them. Desilu decided at this point that regardless of NBC's decision, the board of directors who served the president of Desilu on this one said that the end of Star Trek was right here and right now. So we'll leave it there. We'll Star Trek come back. We'll never know the answer, or at least until next week. <laughs> so uh, that's it at this point. My name's Matt. This is Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper, and then we will see you all next week.